Hello and welcome to the Scrimba podcast. On this weekly show, I speak with successful developers about their advice on learning to code and getting your first junior developer job. Today, I'm joined by John McKay, who recently just got their first junior developer job after completing Scrimba's front-end developer career path. This is very much a success story for Scrimba and one I'm very excited to share. Of course, we're proud that Scrimba could play a part in John's success, but also I promise you're going to learn a lot from John's experience. John actually entered into a very unique and very exciting 20-month training program within the technology department of one of the UK's largest supermarket chains. In other words, while some people are paying to participate in a six-month bootcamp, John is being paid to learn for 20 months with the expectation that he graduates from his junior role. This was a huge success for John, but this story is not without its challenges. Finding this role took much longer than he anticipated, and he had to pick himself up by the bootstraps on more than one occasion. For about six months longer than I needed to. <laughs> I delayed because of my CV, I delayed because of my portfolio, I delayed because of interview prep. It was only when I actually started applying for jobs and got absolutely no response whatsoever when I thought I'd done everything right, I realized that mm, maybe it doesn't matter. This is what the weekly Scrimba podcast is all about, learning from one another and especially from our mistakes. Let's get into it. You recently managed to get quite a unique opportunity. Can you tell us a little bit about it? Yeah, I kind of got offered a position, not as a junior developer, but straight away just as a software developer, but in the guise of a 20-month training course. So the next 20 months of my life is a training course whilst actually working. That's crazy and not that common to come about. No, I think it's a one-off. But by the sounds of it, it's probably going to be the future. They apparently has been very successful over the last few years. And there's a lot of talk about it, you know, kind of becoming the new norm, the future of tech. It sounds like this company, they have made a huge investment in tech. They need a lot of developers now and for the future. So instead of waiting for people to apply and hope they choose this company, they've sort of created this 20-month initiative to get aspiring developers in the door, help them level up and get familiar with the code base and the projects. And hopefully, at the end of the 20 months, everybody's excited enough to continue working as a full-time developer. Yeah, that's pretty much exactly it. I think the only area that is a bit less obvious that they've realized is that a lot of the people who tend to go into this industry historically were computer science graduates. And they realized that if everyone comes from the same point of education, everyone kind of has the same ideas. And they wanted to break out of that kind of trap rather than having everyone think the same way, maybe have some renegades and some rogues who are there to break the system and rebuild it in a different way. Oh, interesting. I guess we'll talk a little bit about how you've become a renegade and gone rogue in a few questions time. You were training to become a developer, right? Can you tell us a bit about your background and what appealed to you about programming? My first bit of computer programming, which is really going to age me, was DOS. The first computer my parents had only had MS-DOS on it. And you used to write little bits, little bits of script, various things to uh, optimize stuff. I was probably eight at the time. My parents were always considering if you met them, they seemed like they should be abject hippies living out of a van. Both of my parents are, are weirdly into technology. My mum's favourite belonging in the world is an iPad. And uh, my dad did a computer course just to kind of teach me some bits about it. 
And so I had a bug pretty early on and I started by just teaching myself how to make websites and then eventually onto iOS apps and, and various other things. But I never made it a career when I was younger. I had a kind of a bad experience of it when I tried to do freelance when I was 16 or 17. And um, I let that kind of sell my experience at the whole endeavor. Fast forward 14 years, the bug had kind of never gone away. I still loved coding and I still loved making things. And the first lockdown, I think because lockdown completely disrupted all of our lives and ended routine and ended, you know, the norm, that kind of gave me the mind space to think, you know what, I can I can completely change my life and do something completely different. And uh, that's actually when I found Scrimba. That's when I started. You were working teaching guitar, I think, as you were learning on Scrimba. At what point did you start actively looking for jobs and how did you come about this one? Uh, I'm the worst example in the world for, for this stage of it. I probably did everything wrong. Oh no. I procrastinated for about six months longer than I needed to. <laughs> When I finished the front end career path and then spent a probably six to eight months faffing with every part of the process that I could. I delayed because of my CV. I delayed because of my portfolio. I delayed because of interview prep. Uh, any excuse where I could kind of delay the, the beginning of the process onto the next month I, I, I took until eventually I started. Well, why is that? It's, it's my nature. I naturally... I don't know. I need a couch to lie on. Um, oh, no. <laughs> it's not that kind of podcast. Don't worry. I just guess a lot of people, they procrastinate and spin their wheels a bit when they don't know what the next step is. Or maybe it's quite honestly overwhelming, right? There are so many options and you're putting yourself out there. I just wondered if any of these things rang true for you. Yeah, absolutely. I think part of the thing for me was I felt like I was representing myself with a very small amount of information. The thing that I was going to be handing over to employers was not particularly impressive in my eyes. And I kind of really fixated on what that impression was. It was only when I actually started applying for jobs and got absolutely no response whatsoever when I thought I'd done everything right, I realized that mm, maybe it doesn't matter. <laughs> maybe maybe I should have just gone for it because the jobs that I originally found were, you know, six months in the past, they weren't there anymore. And yeah, it was a, it was a big learning curve for me. What happened there, applying to these jobs and not getting any responses, even though you'd followed everything, you know, all the good advice you'd heard, it seemed like you were putting into practice. What was the kind of learning from that? The first thing I learned was to, to kill my ego and to realize that, you know, it's, it's not a representation of, you know, if, if you put an application in for a job and you don't get a response, it, it doesn't mean that you're a, a bad developer or a bad person or... It could be a hundred reasons why you weren't picked. And you kind of have to drop your guard, I suppose, and just accept that you are going to get a lot of rejections. And it doesn't really matter, actually. You know, when, when you send off an application, you don't hear back. Nothing bad happens. But for some reason, that was enough to put me off. And uh, I learned to ignore that and go for it anyway. Not hearing back from those companies and having done everything right, surely that left a bit of a question mark as to what to do next. How did you approach it, Jono? Um, Scrimba was a big help. It sounds like a plug. I promise I'm not a shilling for Scrimba. But there were a few interviews of people who said, you know, alternative ways to get a foot in the door, um, message companies directly or communicate through LinkedIn and things like that. And that's when it kind of broke me out of the trap of thinking, right, you have to have a really good CV and you have to do the old fashioned thing of seeing a job listed somewhere and apply for it. And that's when I found a hacker job, 
which is this kind of website where you make a profile and the companies find you and ask you to apply for the job. Uh, and that's actually where I got my job offer from. That's amazing. You wouldn't assume to like read a book on programming and be a great programmer. Like you have to practice the coding as well, right? And it's probably not that different with applying to jobs. Like you can hear all the best advice. You can follow all the best articles and all these hygienic things like optimizing your LinkedIn profile. But it isn't until you actually start to get out of your comfort zone, drop your ego, as you say, and crack on with it, do you actually realize what these specific challenges for you are? You're in a good place, right? Because you followed all the good advice to begin with. But there's always going to be a sort of, you know, hump in the road. Hopefully you can find the right resources to to get past that. I'm really pleased that Scrimba ended up being that resource for you. Yeah, definitely. It's, I mean, it's all a learning curve and, and you can be good at everything, including actually interviewing. Doing well in an interview is a skill. It's not something you're naturally born with. I know people, I have friends of mine who apply for jobs periodically just to keep their interviewing skills sharp, which sounds slightly masochistic to me. I don't know why you'd put yourself through that if you didn't have to, but you know, they, they swear by it. By saying, you know, if they're constantly thinking about it, they don't get rusty. And then one day, if they do lose their job, they haven't got to get back on form again through a little bit of practice. If you can be on form, that implies you have to ramp up to that point. Meaning if you're brand new to it, you'll never start on form. So it really is something that if you feel like you're not getting anywhere or your initial attempts have been unsuccessful, you're probably just not on form yet. Like if you keep going, if you keep learning new things and tweaking your approach, um, eventually the penny will drop. And that's, that's super exciting. Yeah, absolutely. And, you, you know, you need to learn how to market yourself. You know, you can read all the guides in the world, but they won't be personalized to you. You've got to find your own way to a certain extent. Obviously, you can follow the advice. But when it came to writing my CV, my CV with my experiences and things aren't going to be the same as anyone else's. So as much as I can kind of follow the advice, I also had to, you know, tweak it to make it relevant for me. If you are enjoying this episode of the Scrimba podcast, please do us at Scrimba a favor and share it with your friends on social media. Word of mouth is the single best way to support a podcast that you like. So thanks in advance. Next week on the weekly Scrimba podcast, I'm speaking with Swizak Teller, who is a senior engineer, educator, and author. I asked him in his experience what employers are looking for in junior developers, so you can learn from both sides. Nobody's expecting a junior developer to come in and like build their new infrastructure in React or re-engineer their entire app. I know a lot of juniors want to do that, but honestly, you usually you don't have the experience yet. Some do because they've been working on open source for a really long time, and that's a really good skill to have. But what they're mostly looking for is somebody who's going to come in, who's coachable, who's going to learn very quickly. That is next week on the weekly Scrimba podcast. So make sure you subscribe to see it in your feed, be that in Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Overcast, wherever you like. The Scrimba podcast is available in every podcasting app and you never know what you might see in your feed. We hear advice like on your resume, try and talk about your specific contributions and try and use numbers when you can. And so people who've worked in restaurants and so on might endeavor to write something like, I managed to you know, satisfy 100% of customers, increase the flow of orders by this percent. That's really hard. Like I, I'm not sure how to present myself in that way. There's no playbook. No one can do it for you, right? You're a guitar teacher, for example. You'd be hard-pressed, I think, to find a specific example online you can adapt. So you really have to do it yourself, right? And that's not easy. Yeah. And you know, the advice I, I was always given was to aim towards kind of edutech jobs. 
I mean, I'll drop you in it. You also said it as well. Because you were working in education and you were learning tech, it seemed like a natural opportunity for you to, you have some domain knowledge, right? And some empathy with students and teaching. So going into edutech, you might be new on the technology front, but you have the domain knowledge when it comes to education. Yeah, but you know, that fell down for me because regionally where I was, there were no edutech companies locally. And I, I kind of, I didn't want to work remotely, although I am working remotely. I didn't want to only work remotely, you know, for a, a German company, for example, or, or anything like that. I, I kind of wanted to be able to go into an office, so that, that limited me down. But on the flip side, since gaining the job that I'm in now, you know, multiple people, you know, higher ups and senior engineers have said, you know, a teaching background is quite sought after anyway, because it means that you can explain concepts to people and make it understandable. And obviously, in a, you know, when you're in a big team and everyone's trying to understand the same problem, that's, that's quite a sought after trait. You really heard this from upper ups, the managers and things. They said they, they've learned now that they, they're looking for people with those communication skills because especially, uh, you know, in traditional tech fields, that sometimes the communication skills are the more abandoned or the more neglected parts. One day, I hope to better learn how the landscape has shifted. At one point, everybody associated programmers with like basement dwellers and people who just wanted to focus on the code and hammer the keyboard. But I think probably to do with the uprise of Silicon Valley and startups and seeing CEOs dressed in jeans and t-shirts instead of suits and the rest of it probably has this younger generation excited to build apps and build on platforms and things like that. And it's not only that sort of sub-demographic of hardcore, you know, hacker coder type people. It's so true that nobody really wants to spend eight hours a day or, or more potentially working with someone that might be the best coder in the world, but they don't particularly get along because this amazing coder thinks they know everything or, or they're very unreceptive to feedback, for example, or convinced their way is the only way. Or when they're asked to explain their code, they haven't got, they can't do it, right? Because they've never actually articulated the code. They've only ever typed it. And, and so I totally see a shift there. I don't exactly know what's happening, but I think it's hugely encouraging for anybody who's changing career or entering tech in this day and age. Absolutely. One of my biggest kind of learning curves or the biggest shocks that I've dealt with is going into a situation where I am, it's going to sound a bit odd, but say when you're in social situations and you meet people, um, you very rarely have it in black and white that you're definitely not the most intelligent person in the room. If you chat to someone, it's not, you know, really obvious how intelligent someone is. Whereas if you have someone and they are explaining the most complicated concept you've ever heard and they find it easy, it's very clear how intelligent they can be. You know, that was a really intimidating moment for me just to be surrounded by such talent in that respect. But then after a little while, I, you know, I kind of started to learn that everyone has their strengths, right? You know, there are people in the team who are the coders that you described, the you know, as you said, basement dwellers who code all day and then at the end of the day switch off their work laptop and start up their home laptop and then continue coding. But there's also the people who are, I say you and me, but like anyone listening to this podcast. And I think that diversity is something that is definitely being embraced more in tech from what I've seen so far. Everybody has their strengths and weaknesses. I imagine that's quite liberating. That was exactly my point. Yeah. I think everyone has their place. And learning that just because you're maybe weaker in one area doesn't mean that you're not stronger in another. But that's what collaboration is all about, right? Like you, you sort of make up for someone else's weaknesses and they might make up for yours. That's what makes a great partnership. 
just out of curiosity, can you put some numbers to your job search? I know you, I know you did it over sort of six, seven months. Do you have some impression of like how many jobs you applied to of those, how many turned into interviews? But I just want to sort of visualize that funnel and see how things went for you. So I, when I was in the midst of my procrastination phase, for every job that I applied for, I did a you know a custom cover letter and tweaked my CV slightly to make it more interesting for that company, and probably applied to about ten different jobs in that level of effort, and then I received zero responses to anything, and so then I started to just fire off linkedin applications where it does half of it for you i i signed up to a few other i can't remember what the name of the other recruitment website was off the top of my head and you know a lot through websites like read and stuff like that but i stopped kind of i think i lost a little bit of faith i stopped customizing as much and just kind of fired out my generic bits and pieces and actually sending out my cv i didn't get any responses at all uh, the hacker job one was my first my first response from a company. I think that's absolutely fine. Like it only takes one. You know, you were probably looking for something quite specific. For one thing, you didn't want just a remote job. You wanted that hybrid approach. And probably there were other things going into your job search. I absolutely love it because I think sometimes people hear about these like, you know, wild success stories, getting tons of invitations and offers, but it doesn't have to go that way. It's not all that matters in the end is that you get that one role. What did the interview look like at this company? Because from what I understand, we spoke about this briefly, I think, on Discord. It was a sort of unique interview process that wasn't necessarily based on coding ability. And your girlfriend, I think, sort of helped coach you through it. Is that right? Yeah, because it's a large corporation, they maybe take some of their recruitment process from other areas outside of tech. So they do a competency-based interview. A competency-based interview is where there are a series of kind of personality markers, you know, communication skills, logic, things like that. And there are a series of questions that they can ask. So, for example, if it was communication, they would ask you a question like, give me an example of a time when you have used communication to solve a problem in a team or to solve a dispute. It is a framework for interviewing. It's quite common in, you know, if you went for a job at a bank or things like that, it, it is quite common. And luckily, my, my other half is an expert in this. And she kind of explained everything that I had to do. So she said, they're a big corporation. So they have a little checklist on the other side of the Zoom call. They're going to have a, a checklist of things that they're waiting for you to hear, phrases that they want to be able to tick off. And then the more of those phrases that you tick off, they'll put that all into a spreadsheet and each one will have a score against it. And then if your score is over a certain amount, you'll get the job. And she was uh, 100% right. For example, the question that everyone hates, why do you want to work at this company? They already have the answer. They, they know what they want you to say. And they want you to say what is on the, the company's vision. You know, if you go on the website and you find their page that says our vision and their vision is to be forward thinking or to push technology into the future. If you actually say those phrases, you tick off those boxes and that is what they're looking for. It sounds really transactional in a way, but yeah, that is how uh, that is how the competency-based interviews work. This idea of a competency test is, is fascinating, honestly. I guess there are some of the typical questions in there, like why do you want to work here? Um, that's a fantastic way of answering it, by the way. I love that. What other kind of things did the competency test cover and how could you know what the right answers were? Well, there's a part of my personality that I really struggle with being disingenuous. So interviews for me are an incredibly hard thing to do. 
you know, you can't necessarily have an amazing example for each one. You know, especially for me, I, I hadn't worked in teams that regularly. And the times I had worked in teams, it was quite a boring story. It had gone fine, well, even, but there wasn't anything really amazing that would stand out. And so you kind of have to go through the list and think of a, a story for each one. And you have to keep in the back of your mind why is this story interesting and why are they going to remember it afterwards? Along with also following the, the star approach, the situation, the task that you had to do, the actions you took, and then the result at the end, star, which is a good way to answer pretty much any question if someone asks you something like that anyway. And so, yeah, you kind of have to fudge it a little bit if necessary, but that's just you know how it goes. And that's what I struggled with. Um, if I'm honest. How did you answer a question like that? Like if they said, tell us about a time that you had to use communication to resolve a problem on a team. Like what was, do you, do you remember your sort of answer? Luckily that one was easy for me. The example that I picked was my, my previous job when I was a guitar teacher, I would have to send out invoices occasionally. And for one of the invoices, it didn't get, uh, it didn't get paid for three months. And so I kind of chased them up and chased them up. And then I found out that the family, the mother had been diagnosed with cancer and the grandmother had recently died from COVID. And so I was faced with this situation where, you know, I'm running a business. I can't just say if something sad happens at home, don't worry about it. You don't need to pay your invoice. Um, but also I'm human and I'm not going to say pay up now or else. And so measuring my response with my communication skills was really important at that time for me to be professional, but also be able to look at myself in the mirror at the end of the day. Uh, and the reason why I picked that example was because it is a very serious example but it also kind of shows a kind of human side. So it, rather than just doing something which maybe seems obvious, it's kind of got a narrative. So the situation was that the invoice hadn't been paid. Your task was to like investigate it. What, what was the action you took in the end and, and what was the result? The action was that I had to send them a message and I had to say, you know, I hope everything is okay. I'm sorry to hear that. Um, the troubles that you've been through recently. I'm sorry to hear about that. And then say, you know, there is an invoice outstanding for blah, blah, blah's lesson. Obviously, I'm not going to name them. And I hope that things improve soon. And then fired off the email and kind of hope for the best. And doing it that way, rather than going in angry or going in cold or anything like that, got a much better response. I said the responses they paid. I mean, you, you navigated that perfectly, it sounds like. So it's no wonder you answered that question successfully. Once they did this competency test, like, I, to my mind and from what I'm understanding, this sounds like a fairly generic sort of playbook that companies could apply to any role. But, you know, programmers are logicians typically. And, you know, maybe you would benefit from some previous coding knowledge or at least an inclination for solving problems. Was there a maybe second stage in the interview process that tested those things? It was in four stages. The first stage was just a form that you had to fill out with a series of programming questions or logic questions on. The second stage was a kind of large meeting, a big Zoom meeting where everyone was there and they spoke about the whole process. The third one was then a, an actual honest programming problem. I can't remember what it was now. I think I blocked it from my memory. Uh, Fizzbuzz? Yeah, no, I don't think it was Fizzbuzz, but it was something similar. I think it actually was a problem that I solved in one of the Scrimba challenges, which really helped me. <laughs> 
uh, and then the final the final one was the interview uh, but at the end of the interview they did a non-programming related logic question you're given a set of scales and eight balls and one of the balls is either heavier or lighter than the other and you have to use the scales to work out which one is heavier or lighter than the others and uh, you have to try and do it in four or less steps just to clarify, John, of this company, they weren't strictly looking for any prior developer experience. They were open to anybody who is aspiring to be a developer and could pass the four-stage interview. Yeah. So I wasn't the only person who got the job, but there's a kind of cohort of people who start at the same time. And there is someone else in the cohort who has never programmed before. How do you feel about that whole scenario? That's a really good question. You know, logically from the outside, I think I would have said that I would be a little bit, not annoyed, but, you know, slightly sidelined by it. Uh, But actually now I'm in the situation I honestly couldn't care less. They obviously saw something in that person. And the fact that they've done that before, they've taken on people with no programming experience and it has worked, shows there is something there. I kind of like it. I don't mind. When I was getting my first developer job, and I was training up and I was using a variety of resources, working very hard. I'm pretty sure I could have applied to developer jobs at one point and been successful. But in my head, I was always wanting to just wait that little bit longer. I wanted to really make sure I got the best opportunity I could because I saw it as like a springboard. For somebody without a computer science degree, I really felt like if I could work at that one awesome company at the beginning that people will recognize, that will just help me so much in the future instead of having to sort of like grind progressively working towards bigger or more recognizable companies. It was totally rubbish. It turned out okay in the end, but I really don't think I needed to think that way at all. I think I was just waiting for perfect conditions and they never came. Maybe there's a balance to be struck there between applying to a bunch of jobs, even if you don't think you particularly want them, good interview practice, even if you got to the end, you could always say no. I think it's just about making as many opportunities as possible for yourself. Yeah, absolutely. You know, what works for you might not work for someone else and, and vice versa. I think it is a case, well, uh, my approach next time, if, if I had to completely reset and start again, or went back to the beginning of the first lockdown, heaven forbid, and start the whole process over, I would just go for it. I wouldn't hesitate. I wouldn't put things off. I wouldn't try and keep tweaking things over and over again until they're perfect. I would just start and then gradually improve. Funnily enough, that is the approach that tech companies kind of take now. You know, the the DevOps principle of, you know, you get something out quick and then you improve it or you add to it rather than having one massive project, which is only released after two years of development. You know, you release something tiny after two months. It's all in the spirit of reducing uncertainty. Like as a development team, you don't know everything about a feature until you start building it, like what the cost might be or what additions to the feature you just hadn't considered to make it work, how users will respond to it. Instead of investing so much up front and waiting so long to get any feedback on your approach, maybe wasting a bunch of time and money in the process, teams tend to work a bit more iteratively, right? This is, this is agile in a nutshell, which I think is what you're referring to. Take that same logic and apply it to your job search. If you can get some feedback or input based on a job interview or talking with a mentor, you can sort of iterate on your approach and uh, not only get where you're going faster, but maybe even, well, yeah, get a better opportunity at the end. Who knows? Yeah, I don't really want to kind of come across as though I'm saying that they're, you know, if someone has done it the way that I'm doing it, they're doing it wrong. You know, if you have been procrastinating, you're listening to this and you're thinking I'm describing you, 
don't feel bad about it. Just change it. Now that you're on the team, is there anything you've learned that surprised you, Jono? Yeah, you know, it's, it's an intimidating environment to go into, especially as I'm one of the only people without a computer science degree. I went in with this kind of image that I was going to be working with as kind of superhuman in some way. You know, these are infallible coding machines. For the first two weeks, every time I was in a meeting, or, or we do pair programming, so um, we'll share screens and one person will actually type and the other will talk through what, what you're going to be doing. For the first two weeks, every time I heard something I didn't understand, I was kind of quietly writing down what it was in a notebook. And then about two weeks in, I suddenly realized, why am I doing this? And I just started going, I don't know what that is. Can you explain what that is? And everyone's always happy to go, oh yeah, of course. And it's not until you say that you don't understand something that they then realize you don't understand and are happy to explain. You know, there's never been a time where someone's gone, ugh, you don't know what that is. Why are you even here? I've realized that in tech, not knowing something is actually quite normal. You know, I spoke to one of the senior engineers and he said, I don't know everything. I just know what I need to look up and when. And that was when it kind of really dawned on me. It's okay to say, I don't know. And, and since doing that, I've, I've noticed that everyone in my team does it. You know, they'll stop each other and they'll say, I haven't got a clue what you're talking about. What is this? As a guitar teacher and someone who has learned about audio equipment and performing and stuff like that, you're, you're quite far into that. And you're probably still like learning things that you think you're like, oh, maybe I should have known that earlier. But you don't beat yourself up about it because you just know with the benefit of experience that there's always something new to learn. Um, it's just a matter of what you've been exposed to and in, and in what, what order, potentially. There's no reason why that wouldn't apply to software. Yeah, I think tech is the epitome of, you know, an industry that you'll always be learning in. And that breeds this air of, you know, not needing to know everything and always asking questions. I just want to point out, Jono, you and I, we're quite, we're quite friendly here. We're having a really great chat, I think. It's largely because we've got to know each other a little bit in the Scrimba community throughout the course of both your studying, doing the career path, and more recently sort of searching for a job. What kind of role did having an online community play in your pursuits of a job? I would not have got this job if I hadn't have got involved in the Scrimba community. I can say that quite confidently. There were a lot of weak areas in my in my kind of programming personality. There were a lot of weak areas, one of which being I'd never looked at other people's code, really. I'd never bug fixed on things that I hadn't personally written. Also, just seeing other people's stories and how they'd approached it, learning from other people is one of the best things you can do, really. Although I probably, you know, I could have got this job without those things, I think having the confidence to be able to jump into someone else's code and fix a bug or to understand what someone was trying to do helps you. A confidence boost is always a good thing. Being involved in the community is really important, and I would wholly recommend getting involved if you can. Probably you saw people you were associating with find success. I'm just wondering if that had an impact on you. Yeah, definitely. Actually, what I forgot to say as well, that it gives you a little bit of accountability. I would mention something to people in the community, and then they would ask me about it. And it's kind of like, oh, yeah, I haven't done that. I need to do that. It's kind of like, you know, one of the biggest things you can get from paying for a personal trainer is having someone there reminding you that you have to do it or, you know, someone to let down. Uh, and there were definitely people in the community who played that role for me in my application process and my development. You included, Alex. You know, you really helped me push myself to actually get my CV done because I was procrastinating with it. And you were one of the encouraging forces to just get it out there. Oh, that makes me really happy. Thanks, Sarah. And yeah, thanks so much for joining me on the podcast. It's been an enlightening discussion, super inspiring. I hope there's a lot of people can take away from this. And, and just to ask you quickly, is it okay if we drop your Discord username in the show notes so people can message you with any questions they might have? Yeah, of course. Absolutely. Cool. Jono, thank you so much. Thanks, Alex. 
That was John McKay, also known fondly as Jono in the Scrimba Discord community, and he is a successful Scrimba student whose story I am excited I got to share with you. This episode was edited by Jan Osenovic, and I'm your host, Alex Booker. You can follow me on Twitter, at Booker Codes, where I share highlights from the podcast and other news by Scrimba. See you next week.